Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Courtney Reagan in this evening for Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Steve Grasso. Tonight on Fast, hitting the like button. Social stocks soaring today. Twitter, Snap, Pinterest all catching a bid. We'll break down what's behind the big moves. Plus, burning out cannabis stocks, giving up early gains to close in the red. And coming up, we'll speak with one of the biggest players in the space. Truly, if CEO Kim Rivers joins us exclusively. And later, we, the crypto people, a rare copy of the U.S. Constitution is about to hit the auction block. We'll tell you about the big bid in the crypto land for this prized piece of America. But we start with the big week ahead for retail. Walmart and Home Depot kick off things tomorrow morning before the bell with their earnings reports. Names like Target, Macy's, Kohl's and Foot Locker all reporting in the coming days. And expectations are high going into this quarter's earnings season. Just look at the gains in some of these retail names over the past three months. Dillard's up almost 75 percent. Macy's higher by 64 percent. Signet and others far outpacing the S&P, which is only up about 5 percent in that same period. So how are you playing retail heading into this week, a big week for earnings and ahead of Black Friday, my favorite time of year. Guy, let's start with you. We're fortunate to have you for this, Courtney, obviously, because you're the expert in the space. But I think the place to look, the first thing I saw today was that $1.8 billion stake that I think it was Mantle Ridge took in Dollar Tree. That got Mm -hmm. that space off to the races. We've talked about Dollar Gen for quite some time. But I look at names like Costco, um, which continues just to grind higher. And look at Williams-Sonoma, the move that's made ahead of earnings. And even Restoration Hardware that sold off, it's bouncing now. One thing I've learned, um, never bet against the U.S. consumers want to spend. They will do it. And we're seeing it manifesting itself in some of these stock performances. So I look at Target and say it's about to break out of this potential double top. I think Target looks the most interesting out of all of them to me. Tim, what about you? Well, it, the setup is incredible. And, and again, this is something you kept your eye on many years, but this November more than others. So November is always the best month in terms of share price performance. You get a holiday pull forward this year that much more. In fact, maybe this even started in October. Inflation, good for retailers, right? Ultimately, not great for the, the, the consumer necessarily, but good for retailers. So you have that dynamic. You have it offset against some of this earnings revision curve may be actually starting to get pulled forward, the holiday pulled forward. But right now, I say you're cautiously very optimistic in October, even though the XRT is up over 9%. So really outperforming. It's normally very strong historical. Walmart tomorrow, to me, I'm very excited to see where we are here. This is a company, I think they have room for margin improvement. That's kind of where the business has been going. You're going to get an 8% U.S. comp. I think that's actually conservative, um, even though I think those comp numbers have come higher. Uh, and I think you know, you, you get a valuation here for a company that is not getting an e-commerce multiple. And there are plenty of folks in the space, uh, obviously, that do significantly less e-commerce than, than, than Walmart. Um, I, you know, I think at 22, 23 times 23, 
Um, this stock's actually cheap. I think Target, as Guy pointed out, maybe still the, the, the name to buy because I think they set expectations. They, their second quarter bar, they lowered the curve. They lowered the expectations. And I, I actually think they may be outperforming even on margin. So it's a great time for the space, uh, even though it's had a great run. Dan, what do you make of uh, Walmart versus Target? I know we often pair them together, although Walmart does sell considerably more groceries, and the stock has been much more range-bound than Target. But if you're looking at these two names, because they're some of the early reporters this week, what are you doing in this space? Yeah, it's funny. You know, Walmart seems a bit like a value trap, especially when you look at the outperformance of Target. I know Carter Braxton Worth had a note out this morning on Worth Charting saying that he thinks it looks good technically set up for a breakout. I think that's what um, Tim is kind of saying. And, and I do think, you know, you mentioned the point about groceries versus apparel. You know, Tim sounds pretty excited. I know he's really like Dick's for the better part of this year. This stock had a massive gap last quarter and then it pulled back a little bit and they don't report until next week. But I think those are the sorts of bricks and mortar um, brands that you probably want to be positioned in into the holiday season. That being said, it's up 150 percent, which feels like uh, in a straight line here. Um, but, you know, I think you do want to go for uh, for diversity in the bricks and mortar space here. And Steve Grasso, what are you doing when it comes to shopping to stuffing those stockings here with some retail names ahead of that really big week that we still have coming for the shopping season? It's, it- it does, it does really feel like we're a little overextended in the retail space, but I, I do agree with the rest uh, of the guys that we can have at least a, a Christmas season is probably going to be uh, pretty strong. I think Walmart and Target are pretty interesting, given what Guy had said, the double top uh, nature of a Target right now. It's either going to break down or break out. I think they both look way too similar for me. I'd probably be a seller of both of them betting on, uh, on them both breaking down, actually, even though Target is up 50% year-to-date, grossly outperforming, as Tim said, Walmart. On the other side of it, Court, I am in Capri Holdings based on valuation, CPRI. I think that's the way I'm going to remain playing. I, I think the stock is a double still from here. Wow. Very interesting. And why why Capri Holdings over, say, a tapestry? If you're looking at sort of this premium market and this collection of brands, why is that one more attractive to you? Well, you could play you could play both of them. I'm not saying that you have to pick or choose. Okay. I just know that based on based on the space uh, with a Versace or a Jimmy Chu and also the core holdings of a, of a Michael Kors, you're really getting an undervalued multiple by four to one, let's say, against the rest of the group. All right, fair enough. Guy, you know, MasterCard is putting out its forecast looking at the holiday week, this Thanksgiving spending week, saying that sales in total for retail will be up 10%. Actually, I think department stores will get a really nice bid with sales growth of over 40%, which seems kind of nuts to me. And I guess I just (laughs) keep thinking these department stores better not blow it. So, Guy, if you're uh, playing a department store, any names that you think are most attractive here? We talked about Dillard's already having this pretty big run-up in Macy's, too. Room left to run there? Well, if you've watched Fast Money, and I know you too from time to time, Tim's talked about Macy's now for a while, and the stock has had a, a, a ridiculous run in a word. But you know what? It feels as though there's probably some room left to the upside. Tim can speak to that, but I think some of these names where it feels like they're overextended, sometimes the, the parabolic move comes towards the end. So, To answer your question, yeah, I do think there's room specifically in a name like Macy's. Tim, I'm going to let you uh, jump in here since Guy pulled you in. Well, 
Well, guys, he's kind. I, I, it's simply a couple of things. First of all, the, the, the short interest in the stock is still over 15 percent. The balance sheet's been repaired. So this structural, this company's broken and it's going out of business. That, that's not happening. The question is, uh, how relevant is a department store model? Well, when 43, 44 percent of their sales are going to be digital uh, as we look towards next year, they've also rebuilt that with a lot more efficiencies in terms of their footprint uh, and, again, some forced restructuring out of COVID. I, I like it. And I still think there are people out there that have to uh, have to cover on shorts. I think there is certainly we've talked about the activist interest. We've talked about potentially spinning off the e-commerce business as a driver. Uh, and people like going like this year more than others. Like I'm kind of fired up to go to Macy's and Herald Square. I mean, I, I think, you know, go by see Santa, you know, make a run through a couple of the other departments. People have not done this in a long time. And I think for that reason, department stores are getting more of a look this holiday season. I don't think you're alone in that sentiment. I think a lot of people are excited to go back to the stores. Before we move on here, Dan, I want to get you to jump in with the last comment. Obviously, we're going to be looking for a lot of themes, a lot of discussions on supply chain, inflation. Anything in particular you think traders ought to be listening for with some of these retail reports? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Courtney. Um, there was a FactSet report, their earnings insight by John Butters last week that highlighted 283 companies of the S&P 500 have already talked about inflation, supply chain bottlenecks, and, and the associated disruption from that. I would expect that to kind of peak in this quarter here over the next few weeks. And then we start thinking about what do greater inventories look like? You also mentioned that um, MasterCard or Visa data about um, expectations for sales up 10%. I take a look at PayPal. You know, this is one that we've talked a lot about over the last few weeks. It's absolutely gotten nailed. It was down 35% from its all-time highs in the summer. It had two consecutive disappointing quarters here. Feels like it's holding 200 bucks here. This could be a decent play into that Black Friday, Cyber Monday, whatever the heck it all is. Um, and, you know, it just seems like it's a kind of washed out here. Still a little expensive, but maybe there's just a lot of negative sentiment in the name right now. Hmm. PayPal down about 9% year to date. Well, we're going to keep the conversation going with our next guest, who is expecting consumer strength, but he does question whether retail stocks will see the big benefits from it. Dan Suzuki is the Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors. Thank you very much for being here with us, Dan. Talk us through where you see the consumer and how you believe that will or will not play into the retail stocks. Well, thanks, Courtney. Uh, you know, I'd say I'm pretty mixed on the on the group overall. I mean, at RBA, we tend to look at profits, liquidity, sentiment. You know, I think there's some good things and some bad things overall. As as everybody mentioned, you know, consumers still got a lot of money to spend, and they probably will spend it as we head into the holiday season. You know, so the, the numbers that these companies are going to put up are probably going to be pretty good. But as everybody's focused on supply chain issues and the ability to have pricing power, you know, pricing power tends to go further up the supply chain. So obviously, as consumer-focused companies, they're going to be at the end of the supply chain, and they're not going to have as much supply chain pressure. Meanwhile, they're also the most labor-intensive, so have to deal with those labor shortages that we're dealing with right now. Meanwhile, from a liquidity perspective, there's one sector that sticks out that tends to underperform as the Fed is tightening, particularly as they start to raise rates, which potentially could come as early as next year, you know, is consumer discretionary sector. And meanwhile, despite all of those dynamics, it's one of the most expensive sectors out there. So I think there's just better ways to get cheaper growth if you're bullish on growth here, which we are. Hey, Dan, when you look at the whole rates dynamic, I'm glad you brought that in. How much does that play into what your bets are? You're leaning a little more cyclical in what you think of to be the next growth, a quote unquote, environment to be. Are you perplexed with the 10 year and why rates 
aren't really acting the way you would think they would? Yeah, Steve, I, I, I am a bit perplexed, to be honest. I mean, I think if you look at the, the longer term trend since rates bottomed, you know, it's actually been in a pretty steady upward trend. You know, as soon as it gets a little bit ahead of itself, you start to see, you know, that downward pressure on rates. But we're right in sort of that long term trend. If you were to have, you know, one of the, the technical analysts on 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 the on the show they probably tell you we're sort of in this nice little trend channel um and that's very supportive of further moves higher in rates so i think that the the reality is the fed has cornered the market on on treasuries they own over 50 percent of the 10 to 20 year maturities so as they start to buy less that support's going to come out um, um so i think that especially in the environment where growth we think is going to still be pretty good here you know that should put continue to send rates higher and so that's where we're positioned in the book Dan, what are your thoughts right now on inflation, where it's the hottest, is it transitory, is it not, and then the follow through there for some of your recommendations if you're looking at sectors? Yeah, I mean, the whole inflation story, I, I think the transitory debate is dead, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know why even the Fed itself has admitted that it's, it's no longer, it's not transitory. Um, so I don't think that's a debate, and I think it, it's here to stay. And I think that, you know, yeah, the headline numbers could eventually start to come down, you know, toward the low threes. But I think if you step back, the underlying trend on inflation is still higher. I mean, you still have the ongoing, you know, supply chain issues. I mean, you've been reporting on CNBC all day. You know, the number of ships outside of the, you know, Long Beach, L.A. ports is, is basically continues to go higher. So that sort of temporary part of the story hasn't abated yet. Meanwhile, the longer term story, the bigger part of the CPI components that is is the shelter component. That's a big chunk of what we spend on. That's going to continue to move higher. And then put those aside, all the macro forces suggest that, you know, inflation is probably going to tend to trend higher, if, if only because the, the economy is tighter than it was a few years ago before pan, the pandemic even hit. Um, and so I think that you want to still position for higher inflation. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're overweight energy in, in, in our portfolios is because I think that's a great way to get, uh, you know, that that inflation hedge in the portfolio, especially at the cheaper valuations and a good and a good dividend. Got it. Dan Suzuki, thank you for joining us here tonight. Thanks, guys. Tim, I want to toss it over to you. What do you make about the thoughts on energy as a good way to play inflation being permanent, not transitory? Look, I, I think we still have this reflation trade going on. So if we think rates are slowly moving higher, even if Steve and Dan are perplexed, I mean, I, I think you've got a case here where a, a lot of things, uh, a lot of hard assets are moving higher. So uh, I think the dollar is something to be concerned about here. Uh, I, I just think that uh, the supply demand imbalances and the lack of swing capacity in any place other than OPEC right now, and as long as they stay committed with OPEC plus, um, they're going to have the ability to hold prices up here. And right now, I, I, I think there is a little bit more political gamesmanship in here. I think energy stocks look great. I've been long oil services. I've been long integrated. Uh, and I do think that the, the oil services names every day that oil stays up here, there is more and more drilling going on. So it's not been a linear uh, follow through with the oil price. It's underperformed maybe for a reason to this point. Rig counts have more than doubled from uh, the last 12 months. So like oil services. We're following a developing story here out of the White House. President Biden is about to kick off a high stakes meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. CNBC senior White House correspondent Kayla Tausche is live for us with the latest. Kayla, what's going on? What do we know now? 
Courtney, President Biden is expected to hold that virtual bilateral summit with China's President Xi Jinping at 7.45 Eastern time. This is the closest thing to the first face-to-face meeting that the two leaders will have under the Biden presidency. Uh, Don't expect any specific deliverables to come out of this. Uh, The senior administration officials said that President Biden initiated this meeting specifically for the reason to make sure that Beijing understood that the U.S. wanted to avoid confrontation, even as it challenged China's behavior on the world stage. Among the areas where Biden will raise concerns, Taiwan, technology and human rights. But the president wants to erect guardrails around those issues and also seek cooperation on other areas like climate change and trade. Although the senior administration officials said do not expect the U.S. to raise issues on tariffs or on the supply chain. Uh, This meeting is expected to last several hours into the evening. And the press secretary said today that uh, there should be more information provided by the White House at its conclusion. Uh, But interestingly, uh, the timing of the meeting is no coincidence. Earlier today, you saw President Biden sign the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure deal into law. Uh, The president's foreign policy since the campaign trail has been rooted uh, rooted in projecting from a position of domestic strength outward for these conversations with global partners, passing this bill and signing it into law and initiating perhaps $1 trillion of investment into this country, even over a number of years, is something that the president is expected to uh, laud in this evening's conversation and show China that it plans to challenge it uh, here at home. Back to you. Kayla, thank you very much. I know you're going to be following that for us. Guy, what are you watching out of this call? Seems like it could go a lot of directions, but nothing with the tariffs, nothing with trade of any real substance. I'm, I'm watching the, I want not the call itself, but then the subsequent commentary post call and see like okay. one of my concerns. And by the way, unfounded concerns has been uh, th- what's going to happen with China, this China Taiwan situation, which seems to be getting, I don't want to say worse by the day, but the rhetoric cl- clearly hasn't gotten any better. Do we have any, um, uh, let's say, do we have any cooling there in terms of some of the rhetoric? That would be very bullish for the market. I just don't think it's going to happen. And I guess my point is, I think the market's underestimating how things, how poorly things can go in this continued tension between China and Taiwan. Conversations seem to be very important, no matter what the topic is between U.S. and China. Well, coming up, we the ether, a rare copy of the U.S. Constitution hitting the auction block this week. And one group is making a big bet that Ethereum can help form the more perfect union. We'll explain ahead. But first, Boeing takes off. Shares surging more than 5%. So is it clear skies ahead for this trade? We'll break it down when Fast Money returns. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Boeing taking flight today at more than 5% and leading the Dow. The company saying it is, quote, getting close to resuming deliveries of its suspended 787 Dreamliner model. It also secured a deal with Emirates for two 777 freighters. That's the good news. The bad? The stock is still down 16% from its March high and trades nearly half of its record peak set back in early 2019. So is this the start of a bigger turnaround? Steve, kicking it off with you. Yeah, so I was going to touch on exactly what you had said about the down 16% from the March high. All of the short-term technicals have rolled over. It's bounced slightly. I shouldn't say it's bounced slightly. It's bounced off of this uh, recent October low. It's taken out that October high. I think things are possibly turning around for them. It's about free cash flow for them. I think that the worst is behind them. So, yes, I agree. It probably is a buy at this point. Mr. Nathan, what do you make of Boeing here? Yeah, you know, I don't really have much of a take on it. I mean, I'm happy for the the Chinese to try out those 737 Maxes before we do, I guess. Um, you know, I would look at some of the, um, the you know the airline stocks here. JetBlue had that big gap. Um, you know, it held 14. It went uh, to 16 and a half or so. Filled in that gap back to 15. I like JetBlue here. That's one I've been playing from the long side here. So I think airlines still look really washed out and are not prepared for that reflation trade um, that Tim is talking about, or at least they don't act like they're ready for it. Tim? I, I tell you what, I, I think Boeing's going a lot higher, and I think the technicals actually look really interesting. I think you, at 225, uh, you broke through a downtrend from June, which is part of this number we're all talking about, how much is pulled back, decidedly. So, again, decidedly to the upside. The fact that 787 and 777 orders, that's, that's where the margin is for, for Boeing. Um, and, look, as you get out to 23, the numbers, the multiples on 22 are tough. But as you get out to 23 and, and I think continued healing both of the industry and Boeing's balance sheet overall, again, from a period where they had to borrow money, um, this is a 10 percent free cash flow yield company. This is a company that makes, you know, goes from six bucks a share next year to probably nine bucks a share in 23. So suddenly, you know, at, at the current levels, you're trading at around eight and a half times. You know, that's not expensive. And the free cash flow yield is why you want to own Boeing in the past. It's coming back. So, again, big breakout on the chart. I'm long the name. So I, I think this is positive. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. In crypto, we trust. A copy of the U.S. Constitution up for grabs. And one group is making a bid using Ethereum. So will crypto help form a more perfect union? Plus, the traders are doing some mingling and getting to know the social stocks as they fly high. So is there still time to join the party? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. A rare piece of American history is headed for the auction block. Sotheby's auctioning off a copy of the U.S. Constitution on Thursday, and a group of crypto investors won in. The organization, called Constitution Dow, is raising money using a digital crypto wallet in hopes of securing the winning bid. So far, they've raised more than 800,000 Ether, which is roughly the equivalent of $3.7 million. Joining us is Constitution Dow's Alice Ma. We're also joined by Packy McCormick of the Not Boring Newsletter. He's also a contributor of the project. So, Packy, I'm going to start with you. Why in the world do a bunch of crypto investors want to get together and own the Constitution? And what are they going to do with it? Sure. So, I mean, I think it's an obvious, important historical document for anybody who lives in the U.S., has immigrated to the U.S., appreciates U.S. democracy or lives in a democracy around the world. This is one of 11 existing copies of that foundational text. And for the first time in 33 years, it's going up for auction at Sotheby's this Thursday night. So I think the reason that this group wants to buy the Constitution is because it's a document that represents, I think, a lot of the same things that the, that the Web3 ethos shares with the United States, which is a belief in democracy, a belief in shared ownership, a belief in governance kind of of and by and for the people. Um, and so we're organizing a DAO in order to pull funds, in order to buy this document and bid on it uh, at the auction. Alice, this is very interesting to me. I, I find it quite fascinating. If you are able to secure the winning bid with this consortium of crypto bidders, what happens to it? Where does it go? Who actually owns it? How would you make decisions as a group? Um, so it will be owned by the DAO, um, which means that everyone who buys in, they get a portion of the governance token of the DAO, and then they can um, then use that token to vote on where the constitution should actually be custodied. Um, we are lining up a list of museums that we want to work with um, and are going to let the community actually decide, like, where should it live? Like, which museum do we want to choose? Um, and all of that is, um, well, I'm not going to go into the, the legal details of the entity, but we have that figured out as well. Packy, happy Monday, buddy. Thanks for joining us. Um, listen, if this happy thing Monday. is successful... Happy Monday. If you are successful is this Constitution DAO, okay, and you do buy this thing and you do go by the governance of the DAO and, and this thing is, you know, it's a philanthropic endeavor. How do you see this as an example of disrupting all of these things that you write about and not boring every week about Web3? What is the immediate application that you would see of the companies that we talk about every night on, on Fast Money? You know what I mean? Where is the disruption going to happen next? Yeah. So honestly, I think that the disruption kind of happens a little bit slowly. I think what's important about this is I've gotten messages throughout the day from people saying, you've written about Web3, you've written thousands and thousands and thousands of words about this. And I didn't get it when it was NFTs or purely digital items. But seeing a group come together in three days and pool funds to be able to buy this historical artifact and then ideally govern it together, make decisions on it together, uh, form a DAO around it. I think it just shows people what's possible. And so it's no longer just digital objects, although I think that's a really, really important piece. But a DAO could pull funds and, you know, theoretically one day buy a company or certainly buy uh, real estate and different types of assets. And so I, I think, you know, the term DAO might make it sound a little bit scarier and more futuristic than it is. It's really a group of people coming together around a shared mission, kind of orchestrated and governed by tokens. And it looks an awful lot like, you know, a digital version of an LLC. So, Alice, I have, I have a two-part question. Does Sotheby's accept Ether if you would be the winning bidder? 
And if you're not the winning bidder, what happens to all of the value of the Ether that you've collected so far? Um, I don't want to speak completely on Sotheby's behalf, but our plan is to transfer everything to USD um, before 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 paying their invoice. So um, it's going to be paid in USD. Um, sorry, could you repeat the second question? And then the second question is, if if the group does not end up being the winner, what happens to the money that's already been collected? Money, Ether, USD, in whatever form it, it takes at that point. Yeah, um, so we have set up um, like a smart contract setup, which basically guarantees that people can withdraw their funds from the contract if they so choose. Um, they just give up their tokens. So basically everyone can get a refund. This is very fascinating. Packy and Alice, thank you for joining us. We'll be following along to see what happens on Thursday. Let's trade it. Tim, I'm going to let you jump in here. I, I, well, first of all, it, certainly Ether uh, and what this means in terms of people thinking about buying stuff, not in Bitcoin, but, but in Ether. I mean, we, we've been hearing about this in, in NFT land for months and months and, and how it's, you know, the commercial backbone of at least off of this platform is not is very significant here. Uh, Packy talked a little bit about uh, kind of the governance dynamics and the significance of this moment in time and the Dow. It sounds to me a lot like how a digital stock market could work, too, using the blockchain. Mm. And, and so just very, very interesting. And, and I think we might be seeing the future here. Guy, I find this fascinating because as the point was made, it is a, a physical item. It is an actual piece of history. It is the Constitution. It's not a digital piece of art like an NFT. Does that somehow make all of this a little bit more real, a little bit more tangible to people that weren't before really buying into the cryptocurrency market? Absolutely. I think that's exactly the point, Courtney. I'm glad you brought it up. Because if this, in, if in fact they do emerge victorious, or whatever word you want to use, if they were to win, uh, this will be news. This will be evening news stuff. They'll lead with this, or it'll be one of the top stories on the six o'clock news. And I think people will then say, wait a second, what's going on here? So I think you make a great point. This is one of those things where people will take notice, and it gives the next tailwind to a space that probably doesn't need a lot of tailwinds, but it's about to get another one. Well, good thing we're bringing it to everybody here first. So they already have the news. They don't have to wait for the other news programs to catch up. Well, coming up, social climbers, the social media stocks making some big moves higher today. We're breaking down that trade ahead. Plus, the big sell call that sent one cybersecurity stock plunging today. We're bringing the name. you got to stick around. Fast Money returns right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Social media stocks topping the tape today. Take a look at shares of Pinterest and Snap, both jumping more than 3%. Meta platforms and Twitter also up at the close. Steve, what's your take on these moves today? Kind of sneaky upside movers. Yeah, I think, you know, in the, in the social platform or, or when we're looking at a, a Pinterest or an Etsy or things like that of that nature, it's can they survive the post-pandemic uh, environment. And I think in large part, there's going to be winners, there's going to be losers. They figured out a way to survive. When you're talking about a name like Snapchat, I think it's a matter of just basing again, where fell out of favor, maybe growth was losing the bid. And now you're starting to see people move back into those areas where they figured that they've sold off just enough now and they could get back into it going into year end 
trying to hit the cash register one more time because I don't think it's over for growth as a blanket statement. Names like Snap and Twitter, I think, have a long runway ahead of them as well. Dan, do you think that's true? A long runway ahead of some of these names? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, listen, are they under monetized? Do they run the risk of being, um, you know, like having upstarts in this Web3 world that our friend Packy talks about in, in a decentralized sort of web? Of course they do. I don't think they're done right here. I think that, you know, the results of Snap were obviously hit by some of the Apple um, iOS um, changes that were made. And I suspect it bounces back a little bit. So, yeah, probably fills in that earnings gap. So does Twitter over the next few months. I thought that Pinterest was really interesting today. There was a lot of call activity. Um, it looked like some rolling, but it was definitely in November and January um, where there was some action there. And this is one where, if you recall back to when PayPal was maybe floating that 40 or $45 billion um, takeover, I said at the time, it didn't make any sense to me about PayPal, but it may, might make a lot of sense for someone like Walmart. So when you see that sort of call activity, I suspect it's probably people speculating about another takeover bid for Pinterest. Interesting. I was surprised at how many stocks actually have mentioned the Apple iOS as sort of a, a drag for what they've seen. Poshmark was one that surprised me. Meanwhile, a buzzkill on CrowdStrike. Shares of the cybersecurity company falling more than 10% today after Morgan Stanley initiated the stock with an underweight rating. That's its worst drop since March of 2020. Analysts at the firm seeing strengthening competition and expect slowing revenue growth for the company. Tim, what's your take here for CrowdStrike? Well, first of all, bravo for an analyst team that takes a stock that's been scorching hot and, and looks at a 25 times EV to sales and, and says, no, nah, we're, we're, we're not getting on the, the, the secular bandwagon and, and putting a buy on a stock that, that is a great company, is doing a lot, um, is clearly been taking on the enterprise and, and broadening at a, at a time when obviously security and, and cyber issues are, are dominating the headlines every single day. Uh, but again, the competitive landscape is, is not static. Um, their ARR growth of you know, 40 to 50 percent, I, I think people think is going to be challenged when, uh, you know, and I heard some of the, the dynamics here of the channel checks that they, they're hearing from core customers is that there are other people out there doing their job. So again, um, I think it's impressive for, for uh, an analyst to downgrade the stock uh, at effectively all-time highs after it's gone up 100 percent. You wouldn't think that that would be that tough, but that's not what we see often. That's true. Guy, you were nodding your head as Tim was speaking to some of those points. You know, I admire the analyst call. I mean, whether they're right or wrong remains to be seen. But, you know, it's better to have a call like this where they're trying to get in front of something at the levels that Tim just talked about than, you know, somebody doing it, you know, as we used to say back at school, ex post facto, you know, after the fact. So I admire the call. I don't know necessarily if it's going to be right. All these stocks have now gotten extraordinarily expensive. We talk about CrowdStrike. We've also mentioned, obviously, Palo Alto Networks, Zscaler, all stocks that have been, in a word, parabolic. But I'm nodding my head because, you know, I do admire analysts that come out and they, and they put it on the line. And we'll, we'll see how this plays out. By the way, I think the space is still in play. Maybe the entire space got ahead of itself. Well, Kramer is also all over the move in CrowdStrike. He wrote about it in today's CNBC Investing Club newsletter. Check it out on CNBC.com backslash investing club or use a QR code on the side of your screen right there. Well, coming up, we're rolling into the cannabis craze with TrueLeaf CEO Kim Rivers, the company reporting strong earnings this morning. She'll break down the quarter with us. That's coming up next. Plus, a winning trade. Shares of win jumping after the casino operator nixed plans for a merger deal. That is options traders rolling the dice that an even better deal is coming down the pike. We've got those details when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out cannabis company Trulieve, unable to hold on to gains after reporting earnings before the bell. The multi-state operator closing out its 15th consecutive profitable quarter with strong revenue growth and a major step forward for its retail footprint. For more on the quarter, let's bring in Trulieve CEO Kim Rivers. Kim, thank you very much for joining us here today. You know, I saw the gross margins took a little bit of a hit when it comes to the year-over-year comparison. Is that what disappointed investors here at the end of the day? Absolutely not. Um, we continue to have a leading margin, and I think folks were actually surprised by uh, us posting 69% gross margin in the results. Uh, in the results today, I actually don't think that um, you know there was much to anything that dis- that was a disappointment on the quarter. I think that uh, it's a typical sell the news event with the uh, with the press event with uh, Congresswoman uh, Mace this afternoon, which we're of course excited about and see it as a macro uh, positive positive catalyst. Um, but as far as our quarter, uh, we posted. Record revenue, um, record EBITDA. It was a beat both top and, and bottom line. And then again, exceptionally strong uh, margin margin performance as well. So um, I'm really proud of the team this quarter. I think it was a, a quarter with execution. We also closed, of, of course, Harvest, the Harvest transaction in the middle of the, in the, middle of the quarter as well. Uh, and we ha- now have an industry-leading footprint with over 155 dispensaries across 11 states, 3.5 million square feet of cultivation. So um, it, was, it was a great quarter. And I think that, again, um, um, in the afternoon, we saw the broader, a broader market uh, sector sell-off, um, which again is, is a typical sell the news, uh, sell the news event. Hey Kim, it's Tim. Yeah, I mean you, you don't need to play fast money trader. It was a great quarter. Uh, your stock had moved over 30 percent week over week, and it was a crazy week for the sector. So um, I, I agree with the assessment of great political news as something that had been priced in. In fact. I would focus on 316 million in pro forma revenue, which puts you really toe to toe with Cureleaf as the biggest company in the space. And so I'll ask it in the context of DC maybe moving faster. You're a company that's uh, incredibly cash flow generative and you have cash in the balance sheet. Does this make you want to get bigger faster? You're already at, you know, near the front of the line, if not at the front of the line. You've made a big transaction, um, but you're in a position where you could do more and and Washington maybe making it uh, that much more interesting to move faster. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we love the optionality of, uh, of the combined footprint and where we sit. Um, and, and to your point, the fact that we do have, uh, you know, a, a very um, not only do we have a great a great balance sheet today, but we are generating, um, you know, exceptional uh, you know, operating cash flow. Uh, on a quarter by quarter basis, so uh, certainly we remain uh, we remain um, eyes wide open in terms of opportunities ahead of us, while also uh, ensuring that we're continuing to focus on our core business and optimizing our platform so that we can continue our track record of profitable growth. Kate, when it comes to the way that you've laid out your strategy and your physical locations, you're looking at this more of a hub retail strategy. Why is that better for you? Well, I think that, again, going back to this concept of optionality, um, you know, we think it's important to look at and maintain efficiencies across markets in our current landscape, um, which is uh, somewhat fragmented. And given the federal regulatory constraints, uh, you know, can be difficult, uh, quite frankly, to achieve to achieve profitability on a market by market basis. So ensuring that we have alignment across regional hubs um, allows us to be to be more efficient in our existing markets. It also sets us up uh, to take advantage of federal reform uh, when uh, that occurs. And we don't think it's an if, we do think it's a when. So, you know, having, again, regionalized um, operational scale uh, will be important and will be increasingly important as the landscape shifts over time. So, Kim, it's Steve Grasso. Uh, 
When you look at the environment, where do you see the this whole cannabis space in five years? Obviously, a lot of the D.C. Uh, reverberations that will impact the industry are going to be known at that time. Do you see it as a handful of players or do you see it as ubiquitous through every state and more players than we see right now? Yeah, you know, obviously a lot of that uh, is dependent on on regulations and how those how the regulatory framework um, unfolds. I, I do think that the um, you know analogy to alcohol is a good one. Um, I think that you know there certainly will be room in the ecosystem for a variety of players, um, both big and small, and on various parts of the supply chain. Um, I do think that you will have some you know significant significant companies and significant brands that uh, that resonate within the space um, across the U.S., and that certainly is where TrueLeave uh, will be positioned uh, in, over the next five years. Um, you know, I think it is important to note that while the federal conversation is certainly exciting and we certainly anticipate that there will be change there and meaningful change there over time, that, you know, our growth nor, you know, really the U.S. cannabis growth story is not predicated on federal reform. Um, you have companies such as TrueLeave who are extremely successful, extremely profitable, growing on an amazing year-over-year basis with 64% standalone loan growth year over year, uh, absent federal reform with the restrictions on banking, with the restrictions and the, you know, kind of absurd tax rate that we're under. So while federal reform certainly is going to change the game to the positive, there are a lot of near-term catalysts that we have to look forward to at the state level as well. Kim Rivers, CEO of TrueLeaf, thank you very much for being here with us. Thanks. Okay, Tim, we know that you're hot in this space. What do you make of the results today and the (laughs) trades from here? Oh, well, uh, full disclosure, uh, TrueLeaf's a big position in, in my ETF. So yep. I, I, I like the story. These numbers were great. Um, I think just let's quickly talk. We were on this story all week. A week ago, uh, you, you really had some, some headlines out of D.C., um, potentially extraordinary. But I think people do have to understand that the federal path is still one that has challenges. Um, and today, again, Nancy May, Senator, uh, excuse me, Congresswoman from South Carolina, who's brought forth the State's Reform Act, um, is you know, running into some headwinds even from from within her own state. But the bottom line here is the legislative path for the sector, it, it is not about if, it is when. And, and I think the, the, what you saw in the market over the last week when cannabis stocks moved from really 3 p.m. Friday, November 5th through last Friday uh, and even into today, in many cases, the biggest companies in the sector moved 30 to 40 percent. Um, you know, that's just something that you can't do without taking a little bit of a breath. And let's let's take a deep breath because cannabis is a long term growth story. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to all be made up uh, in, in a week's worth of trading. And I, I think the foundations are built there. Big moves. Thank you very much. Well, coming up, options traders rolling the dice on win. That's stock hitting the jackpot today. We'll break down the action ahead. Don't go anywhere. You're watching Fast Money live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is out west talking with the CEO of Twilio. Catch that full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Well, check out Wynn Resorts surging after the casino giant nixed a deal that would have taken its online betting unit public through a SPAC. That news sparking a flurry of optimistic options bets that another deal might be in the works for Wynn. So let's bring in Mike Coe to break down the action for us. Mike, what you see here today? Yeah, hi, Courtney. So what we saw was calls outpacing puts by well over three to one on about 70 percent above average call volume. The most active options 
with the November 100 calls. Those are the calls that expire this coming Friday. Nearly 5,000 of those traded for an average of about $1.11 a contract. Buyers of those calls are risking a little over 1% of the current stock price on bets that the stock's rally could continue because the upside break even on those options is up a little over 3% by week's end. Interesting stuff. Thank you, Mike. Let's trade it. Dan Nathan, what do you make of the action here and win? Yeah, I think Mike really uh, lays that out pretty clearly. You're not risking a whole half of a lot, but you don't have a lot of time to earn that out. So if you really think that there's other bids or you like the fundamental, um, you know, just change that might be happening in this story as we get into 2022, you, if you wanted to find your risk, I'd look at longer dated calls or call spreads. Um, and I know that these guys are looking at this chart saying it's about ready to break that downtrend that doesn't look too different than that one that Tim just outlined in Boeing. So this one looks like it's ready to kind of fill in that gap back towards 110 or so. Well, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, it's already time for your final trades. It's time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. Courtney, great having you this week, especially with retail. And, and again, I'm a buyer of Walmart into those numbers on a better comp Uh, And I think higher gross margins. Guy, by the way, uh, Yanks just picked up the Mets cast off manager. Hope you like that. Steve, we're going to go to you next. Sonos, well off its recent highs here. But this is the time where Sonos gets to shine going into the holiday season. Seasonality is their tailwind. Sonos. Dan. Yeah, so we were talking about those social names. I, you know, listen, that snap, that down 25% in one day after those results was really surprising to me. The stock is, seems to be finding a bottom here. Maybe it makes a move um, above 55 and tries to fill in that gap a little bit. So I like snap. And, Guy, you have a special shout-out before your final trade, and I don't think it has anything to do with baseball. It has nothing to do with baseball. It has everything to do with one of our many fans. You know, our fans come in all shapes and sizes. Well, here's a picture <laughs> of Koa Taylor dressed as Harry Pointer. This dog has not missed a fast money in the last three and a half years, all through COVID. (laughs) Big shout out to Harry Pointer. So on the back of that, what else could my final trade be? But woof, which is Petco, they report later this week. (laughs) I was thinking, please tie that in. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. It's been great to be here with you. Mad Money starts right now. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.